Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Looking through the eyes of John Singleton Copley, Jane Kamensky reveals an unknown American revolution. In this lecture, held on October 30th, 2016, at the National Gallery of Art, Kamensky draws from her new book on Copley and his world to untangle the web of principles and interests that shaped the age of America's founding. Copley's prodigious talent earned him the patronage of Boston's patriot leaders, including Samuel Adams and Paul Revere. But the artist did not share their politics, and painting portraits failed to satisfy his lofty artistic goals. When resistance escalated into all-out war, Copley was in London. The magisterial canvases he created there, several of which are now in the National Gallery of Art collection, made him one of the towering figures of the British art scene, a painter of America's revolution as Britain's American War. This program is coordinated with and supported by the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery. So I want to start with this guy um, who I suspect you all recognize. I got into a conversation recently with some friends about whether Revere was Boston's Hamilton. Um, And I I think um, the way I meant that in this conversation is um, uh, he's portrayed and taken in this image as an emblem of American directness, uh, a sort of uh, a scrapper who faces you head on, who is what he is and wears what he wears. He's in shirt sleeves. Um, And the way that uh, we present this tiny image in Boston, it's only about two feet by three feet uh, in dimension, um, is to give it an almost sacred status. So this is the way it hung in the MFA uh, shortly after it came to the museum. This is 1951, it came in the 1930s. And um, as a Catholic girl, I recognize that this is, of course, an altar, right? Here's the, uh, you approach it as if genuflecting and you've got the American flag on one side and the flag of the Commonwealth on the other. Museology has changed a lot in the last 60 years. This is the shiny new art of the Americas wing at the MFA. But you can see that a a whiff of that altar-like presentation remains with Revere in the center of a three-part case, his silver on the right, and then this is the the Liberty Bowl uh, that that Revere made in front of it, almost um, chalice-like. And along the wall to the left uh, is a quartet of Copley's, um, Sam Adams in the front, John Hancock, Dr. Joseph Warren, Mercy Otis Warren, uh, arranged as uh, sort of patriot super friends, as my colleague and friend Jill Lepore once called them, in a gallery called Revolutionary Boston. Well, of course, in Copley's America, um, they were no such thing. They looked as, as a quartet only looking backwards, right? They were painted at different moments in the 1760s um, in the only nation any of them knew, uh, which is this provincial edge of the British Empire. So it's a conceit of my book that in the way we usually tell the story of the American Revolution, men like Paul Revere are uh, very bright and shiny and um, very much in the forefront of our uh, sort of mind's eye. And men like Copley, um, who were uh, ambivalent, shifting, unwilling revolutionaries, um, who were not, in fact, 
plain dressed or aspiring to American directness and candor uh, are too far in the background. Um, you can see the difference between the self-presentation of the two men, uh, both here rendered by Copley at about the same time, um, just at a glance. So the conceit of my talk this afternoon is to figure out what the American Revolution looks like if we look at it through the eyes of someone like Copley rather than through the eyes of uh, patriots like Revere. Copley's war, I will submit, was not a top-down war of ideas, nor was it a bottom-up struggle for social justice in the streets, but what I want to think about is a sideways war shaped by character and calling and family and most of all by accident. And accident is a theme I'm gonna come back to again and again. Um, so my goal in the next uh, 40 minutes or so is to introduce you to Copley's life but also to look through his eyes, if you will, so that we see his place and his times in a somewhat unfamiliar way. And the heart of his America are oceans, um, so I will start with that idea. This is a map of Copley's Boston. Uh, it's first printed in 1722 and reissued uh, frequently throughout the century. I think this is the 1769 imprint. Uh, Copley grew up right here in one of these little ramshackle houses along what's called appropriately the Long Wharf. It reaches out more than a half mile into Boston Harbor um, and uh, looks on out uh, past the Harbor Islands, I think aspirationally, to London. If you look at this map, uh, the map is keyed east. East is their north. East is their whole orientation, uh, not only in space, um, but in life. So if we want to think about what Copley's America consisted of, um, it's a group of 26 British colonies, not 13. You couldn't have picked uh, 13 uh, colonies among them when Copley was born in 1738. Um, and in terms of economic and social and cultural ties, Copley's Boston is closer to places like Halifax, um, to uh, London, to Kingston in Jamaica, to Barbados than it is to New York or Philadelphia. Um, so an oceanic world of trading circuits um, that, uh, that has as its heart in London. I think it's no accident that some of Copley's earliest works uh, painted when he was still a young teenager were seascapes. This is called uh, Return of Neptune, and it hangs in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And this is Galatea uh, riding the waves, which hangs at the MFA, actually, which doesn't hang at the MFA. Um, it's owned but not displayed. And you can see the reason that these early works would not be easily displayed, right? Your kid could do that. They have a, they're juvenilia. Um, they are copies of European prints, awkward. He's still learning the handling of a brush. Um, they're not, uh, I think the museum wouldn't hold on to them if it wasn't the early work of somebody who became a famous painter. Um, and yet, uh, if you see them, uh, Neptune on the wall or this one, Galatea in store, a couple of things are striking right away. Um, it's a large canvas, it's three feet by four feet, which is a huge investment of time and material. Um, it shows at once the provincialism and the ambition of a place like Boston, so provincial in that 
It's an American, British American copy of a European print from England, uh, trying to fill in with color, trying to imagine a world in color that he can only see in black and white. And yet um, ambitious in the sense that a 13-year-old aspiring artist is taking the time and the materials to capture uh, scenes out of Greek mythology, which also, uh, especially in the case of Galatea, have a kind of British imperial connection. Uh, Handel's Oratorio, Asus and Galatea, is one of the most popular pieces of um, uh, secular music in the 18th century. So I told you I was going to talk about the role of accidents. Um, and this cuts against prevailing narratives of the period in two ways. Um, one, we think of the American Revolution as being a time of incredibly uh, concerted purpose, um, forward-facing and deliberate. And I think the genre of biography also works against accident. Uh, conceit of the genre of biography is that people, especially leading men, make history by acting in certain ways at certain times and under certain pressures and mostly um, by doing so on purpose. So take a look at, a, at the first paragraph, first long sentence of a pamphlet written by one of the many, many claimants uh, for support from the British government after the American Revolution. This is a common soldier uh, named Lieutenant James Moody and he introduces his work by saying choice and plan, it would seem, have seldom much influence in determining either men's characters or their conditions. These are usually the result of circumstances utterly without our control. And then goes on to write at some length about why his own narrative fits this, uh, fits this account. And this is a, uh, an account of the revolution, a revolution of accidents that Copley would very much have agreed with. Um, I want to start with the accidents of his uh, local being, his family. Accidents of birth in the oceanic world that I've sketched for you. Uh, so one is that his father died when he was very young. His parents were immigrants, um, which was quite singular in Boston, although not all over the British Atlantic. This is a world in motion, but about uh, 75 or 80% of Bostonians were descendants of people who had been uh, born in Boston, Anglo people born in Boston. Parents are immigrants from Ireland, and his father dies very early in his childhood, I think as early as uh, the age of three, and definitely by the time he's nine or so. Um, his mother, who was about 30 when Copley, uh, when Copley was born, didn't remarry for a long time, uh, as long as seven years, which is also very unusual in a world where households are little corporations and the productive capacities of more than one person is needed to make them run. Um, so for a long time, it's just Copley and his mother, the boy called Jack and his mother, shifting for themselves in that little wooden house on the Long Wharf, which is a rough kind of plebeian place, right? The places where people load and unload ships um, and work the docks. Um, that's an unusual family constellation in its day, uh, a time when um, the average New England family probably consisted of eight or 10 or even 12 children over the course of a marriage. Um, it would have been much more typical for a married couple to have no children than to have one, right? If you were, in the words of the time, barren, uh, it was more likely to be absolute than um, situational, in, as in Copley's case. So he's an only child, which is a strange thing for him to be. 
And then another accident. I'm sorry, I'll go back to this. Another accident. When Mary Copley Pelham did remarry in 1748, uh, Jack was 10, she married a highly trained artisan, also an immigrant, an immigrant from England, like her uh, with connections to the Irish community, uh, named Peter Pelham. Um, this, isn't, uh, this isn't Pelham, but a mezzotint that he did of Cotton Mather uh, soon after Pelham got to Boston in the late 1720s. At that point, um, just to give you a sense of the sort of cultural state of play in Boston, at the point that Pelham sells this mezzotint, the medium is new enough to British America that he has to explain in his advertisements what this kind of printing is. So this is a sort of happy accident that uh, Copley's mother eventually marries a second time, and she marries this uh, highly skilled artist and printer. They had two children right away, uh, Mary Copley Pelham and uh, her new husband, Peter. This little boy, Henry, called Harry, um, who becomes and remains very important in young Jack Copley's life, and a little girl uh, named Helena Maria, which I think is a very high church name. Um, I wonder if there's crypto-Catholicism in, um, in their Irish family tree. Helena Maria dies almost immediately. And then another accident. Three years after this second marriage, in 1751, after the coming together of this stepfamily uh, and the stepfather with his tools and his artisanal connections, Peter Pelham dies, um, leaving 13-year-old John Singleton Copley a kind of complicated legacy, um, the rudiments of a trade. He's probably done some informal apprenticeship by then. Uh, the tools and, uh, and other materials, books, maybe prints that are trade goods, but also a vulnerable young family that lacks a male provider, um, which is the way that Copley spent most of his young life. So when we think about how it is that he became a painter, this set of personal accidents is one answer. Geopolitical accidents um, are another happenstance that shapes his world. Um, so this world of oceans, this 26 colonies uh, in a world of oceans is also a world of war. Copley, born in 1738, happens to be born at the very end of the longest period of peace that would prevail for a century, although he, of course, um, could not know that that was about to happen. He lived during wartime for more than half of his long life. So for 45 of his 77 years of life, um, his world was at war. Um, and I'll just give you a quick tour of them here. The war that breaks out, that's the Western Front of the War of Austrian Succession uh, in 1739, uh, ends in 1738, followed, 48, sorry, followed uh, less than a decade later by the great global war known as the Seven Years' War, um, and uh, a long decade, a dozen years after that, by the American Revolution, or as Copley came to know it, as uh, Britain's American War, and then barely, again, another decade of peace before being embroiled in the Napoleonic Wars for the last 25 years of his life. The Seven Years' War has been called the war that made America. Many of you may have seen the PBS series about it uh, by that name. Um, and it, it made 
British Boston into a busy imperial place uh, as a hub for soldiers provisioning and uh, imperial bureaucrats and merchants making fortunes off of uh, the wartime uh, needs and trade. And uh, this is 1755. Young Copley is just coming into his uh, fullness as an artist, uh, about 18 years old, um, and his world bursts into color, the color being uh, British imperial red. You've probably never seen this portrait of Major George Scott before. Uh, it's still in private hands. We don't talk a lot about these early military portraits, which are an important strand of his first decade of painting because um, they're quite formulaic. One looks somewhat like another. Um, uh, not a whole lot to say about ways that they innovate as pictures. They copy some of what uh, a Joshua Reynolds say is doing in England, painting the imperial fabric, literally wrapped in the imperial fabric. But they're hugely important to Copley uh, tactically and strategically, not only in building up his talent, um, but building a network of people from Boston and beyond, people who have ambitions in the British Empire, um, people who are moving around in the empire so that this picture uh, hangs in maritime Canada uh, during those campaigns and would have been one of the ways that Scott advanced himself in the army. And when people said, who did that portrait? He would have said, there's this guy in Boston. And uh, it's a period in his painting career that we know that people are coming from afar to sit to Copley um, with this wartime traffic. Um, it reinforced an imperial framework uh, and I think imperial ambitions. I just want to call this Seven Years War moment out um, for one more thing before moving to the next slide, which you will mostly recognize. Um, I think. When we think about redcoats in the era of the American Revolution, um, there's hissing in the background, right? They're bad, and they come on the scene uh, in Paul Revere's print uh, that shows them marching up the Long Wharf after, uh, after the Boston Massacre. Um, well, when they first appear en masse in Copley's life and the life of other ambitious people in Boston, uh, it's the best game going painting these red coats. It's how uh, John Hancock's wealthy uncle makes his fortune um, and many other Bostonians beside. So I will ask a counterfactual question about this picture uh, known as Boy with a Flying Squirrel, um, begun in late 1764, just after the Seven Years' War ended. Uh, a moment when Copley begins to ponder the question that will haunt him for the next decade. Um, how would his work stand up in London, or as he called it, how would his work stand up at home? That's how his people referred to London. Um, sent uh, to London in September of 1765, right after the Stamp Act riots in Boston and other American port cities, which were an early indication that the peace following the Seven Years' War would be more contentious than the war itself. Um, by the time Copley painted this, he had been working on it probably for about a year, and for longer than that, taking that network of ship captains and officers who are commissioning them and fashioning them into a way of getting something seen in London. So my counterfactual question is, would he have even thought 
to do such a thing, to send a painting overseas uh, to be hung on public exhibition had not the Seven Years' War wedged open his world that way. Um, further, those exhibitions themselves, that culture of exhibition, would not have arisen without the Seven Years' War. Copley made the most significant deliberate decision of his life in 1769 uh, which is about a year after he painted Paul Revere, where I started, um, and about three years after he painted Boy with a Flying Squirrel, which was that he got married uh, to a woman named Susan Susanna Farnham Clark, who was the daughter of a wealthy Boston merchant. These are their pastel pendant portraits, uh, which are at Winterthur. His marriage was late, and he wrote about this, wrote about having the discipline to delay marriage until he could establish a competence. Uh, he married at the age of 31. The average man would have been 25 or 26 at the time, so uh, at the time of first marriage. So it's a significant, as he sees it, a sacrifice. Uh, young Susanna Clark or Suki is 24 at the time of their marriage. Um, and marriage was, of course, uh, in his world, an incredibly important economic decision as well as uh, an affective decision. This is exactly the moment when marriage for love and marriage for money are first being seen to come into um, contact and conflict with each other. Uh, there's an awful lot of theater the year of their marriage about um, love or money, basically, in, uh, in London. Um, he married for love, as far as I can tell. There are a lot of extremely affectionate letters between them. And yet, uh, his marriage into the House of Clark was an enormous social climb for him. I, I think I meditate in the book a little bit about what his father-in-law must have thought when young Suki came home and said, I have fallen in love with a painter. Uh, at the time of his marriage, Copley is a sort of middling striver, and Richard Clark is one of the wealthier men in Boston, uh, trading in goods like uh, indigo and rice and sugar and rum. Uh, being in the sugar and rum trades means that he's trading with the slaving colonies. He occasionally sells slaves in the Boston papers, um, and uh, also some East Indies goods like tea. So what comes to Copley with his marriage uh, is a kind of landed prosperity, first and foremost, is one of the most tangible things. This is a map from after the revolution breaks out where Copley's property is large enough to be created as a map feature, Copley's Hill, that's the inset here. Um, if you know Boston, this is Beacon Street um, and where the gold-topped state house is, and all the way down to the edge of the water, about 20 acres, uh, is the parcel that Copley assembles upon his marriage. Uh, it's a gentleman farm, uh, a, by the standards of its day, propertyed independence. You're never independent when you're working for a living, when you stand on your land, uh, you have a, a version of independence. So Suki brings him property, they bring each other children uh, almost immediately. Uh, marries in 69, Betsy's born almost exactly nine months after the marriage and not one day before, uh, followed by, <laughs> that's how historians tell a lot of things, by the way, is the Barrett marriage date and birth date. Um, followed by uh, John Jr. in 1772 and Mary, sometimes called Peggy or Polly in 1773. Um, 
he seems at the point where he's building this property, which is uh, after the marriage, 1769 through about 1773, to be feathering his nest to stay in Boston. One of the other inheritances of the marriage is slavery. Uh, Richard Clark, as I've said, is in a part of the Caribbean trade where chattel slavery is normative. Chattel slavery is also a part of the world of many of Copley's painters. I didn't do the statistical work in uh, writing this book to compare tax lists that show who owns slaves in Boston to people who sat for uh, Copley. I think it's about 50% of Copley's patrons were enslaved or enslavers, um, and only about 5% of Bostonians were. Um, these things would track together as uh, gentlemen's luxuries. Um, so a sign that you made it would be to get a portrait. Uh, about one in 100 people purchased a portrait. A sign that you had made it would be to employ African bondsmen. Um, and we know that at least three bondspeople joined Copley's household after he married. A boy called Snap, who was probably from the Caribbean, uh, a girl called Lucy, and a, a boy or young man called Cato. Um, we don't know who the man in this 1778 picture is, um, but there are many things about the image that suggest his intimacy with the Copley family, um, including the smile. Teeth are very rarely shown in 18th century portraits until the end of the century, um, and then uh, as a gesture of um, familiarity and sometimes also of hierarchy. Um, you will recognize that this is also the figure who is uh, the apex of the composition in Watson and the Shark. Um, so I don't know if this man is in Copley's household in London, um, but it is, uh, it'll become clear as I conclude the talk that slavery continues to ramify in his life um, long after he leaves Boston. Marriage also brings Copley travel. He leaves Boston for the first time to take a trip abroad, which is how he described going to New York in the summer of 1771. So think about that. To go to New York is to go abroad. To go to London is to go home. Uh, he painted there for about six months, uh, completed 36 canvases in six months, which is not only breakneck speed, but is many times uh, the rate of Copley's usual production. He's known for being quite meticulous and slow, um, including this spectacular portrait of uh, Margaret Kemble Gage, wife of General Gage, um, which he called the greatest portrait uh, he had ever made to date. Um, it hangs in a museum called the Timken Museum in San Diego, which has about five American pictures. So um, with his marriage come love and land and slaves and travel and tea, which I mentioned was one of the things that Copley's father-in-law sold. Um, in 1773, the British imperial state passed a piece of legislation called the Tea Act, which uh, was attempting to do many things, but um, mostly to make sure that more of the tea that Bostonians drank, and they drank a lot of it, was legal uh, rather than smuggled um, by giving them a discount, at once a discount and a monopoly on tea from the uh, English uh, East India Company. Um, Copley's brother-in-law 
Suki's brother, uh, was so excited about this new piece of imperial legislation that he bid for one of the licenses to bring tea to, uh, to the colonies and had what he saw in July of 1773 as the great good fortune to have prevailed in this heated competition and gotten a license to bring tea to Boston. And so in December of 1773, as tea ships approached Boston Harbor, a plurality of the tea that was coming in was owned by Copley's father-in-law. Um, this turned out not to be so fortunate at all. Another kind of unanticipatable accident we know that in December 16th of 1773, 347 of those chests were thrown into the harbor. We quote John Adams about this uh, act frequently. He, he wrote in his diary, this is the most magnificent moment of all. There is a dignity, a majesty, a sublimity in this last effort of the patriots that I greatly admire. Uh, it must have consequences so important and so lasting that I can't but consider it an epoca in history. He goes on to say um, that uh, in a less quoted passage that maybe there should be as many people as tea chests floating face down in the harbor. Um, and it's a very violent time, right? This is one of the things that you see looking through Copley's eyes and singles out among those uh, who are worthy of the people's opprobrium, Copley's father-in-law. So after December of 1773, it becomes clear that he has married not only his love and his fortune, but his politics. So I'll come back to James Moody again and the wish not to choose, um, which of course is about politics as much as about private life. Um, in 1774, the middle ground in which Copley had uh, worked and lived um, fell away as those who called themselves friends of liberty uh, came really frankly to persecute those who were called friends of government and, uh, and later Tories. Um, British Americans, people like Copley who were born hyphenated, were asked to make a choice as if that hyphen was suddenly a line in the sand. We know that many of them, maybe even most of them, refused to do so or went back and forth across that line, that the, the hot ends of the political spectrum then as maybe now we're much more of a minority than we realize. We don't tell this middle story. It's a hard story to recover. So Copley was one of those people in the middle. He didn't want to choose. He refused to choose, but he did leave. He always insisted that he was pulled from America rather than pushed out, that he was drawn home rather than exiled, that he had, as he said, left in pursuit of improvement in my profession that was not attainable in America before the war commenced. Um, this is both true and false. Uh, he left his America, that oceanic provincial America, 10 days after the Boston Port Act closed the harbor, and arguably, after his oceanic provincial America had left him. It's a hard moment to write about and to recover because um, it was very cruel. Uh, he left behind uh, his wife, who was pregnant and had three young children, his ailing mother, who it turned out he would never see again. Um, part of me wonders whether that was 
somewhat the point. Um, and his uh, hot-headed younger brother, um, who he was very worried about uh, dis deploying his passions in this uh, very militarized time. And he left uh, to tour the continent and to see at long last what could be seen. Um, one of the things that historians love when people are far apart, even if it's wrenching for them, there's a lot of evidence. Um, people don't write to each other from the next room, they write to each other from the next continent. And there's a ton of letters back and forth from Copley to his wife and brother and mother uh, in 1774 as he's wending his way through the continent painting pictures like this uh, called The Ascension. It's a teeny little picture, a study for a larger altarpiece, an incredibly ambitious dialogue with, uh, with Raphael, um, wondering what's going to happen to them at the end of his tour. Will they come to him or will he go back? Uh, terribly worried about them, yet unable to conceal in his letters uh, how amazing it is to step aboard the queen's yacht or to eat French food or to hear Italian opera, though he wishes it weren't so sad. Um, <laughs> finally, uh, while he is there, um, writing across this chasm of space and time, and remember that space is time in this world. So it's about a three-month circuit to get a letter back and forth, maybe a little longer. Um, while he is writing and, and seeing across that chasm of space and time, things go from uh, worse to, to uh, grave in Boston. And think about the timing of this little excerpt here. Uh, this is from a letter he writes in March of 1775, reflecting on how lucky he is not to be there. So that means he's responding to news from January, and Harry Pelham is going to read it in May. Um, so by the time Harry Pelham reads this sense of his brother's pride in uh, the fortunate timing of having gotten out before it was too late, fighting has broken out at Lexington and Concord. Copley learns about the fighting in July of 1775. Um, and uh, I think here again, his language is very telling. This is a civil war. Um, not a phrase that we often use to describe the American Revolution, though in the documents of the time, it is the modal phrase that people who are against the war used. Uh, so a civil war has now broke out in America, and I have not the least doubt it will rage with a violence equal to what it has ever done in any other country at any time. He is, after all, a student of war. Um, Copley holds one uh, striking belief about how this will play out, besides the fact that it will be very bloody. At the end of it, he forecasts from this moment in July of 1775, and I'll quote him here, the Americans will be a free, independent people. This is a striking bet, right? Nobody believed that. It's preposterous to have believed it in, uh, in the spring of 1775. But he's also very conscious of the fact, he believes that, by the way, because he's seen how intransigent the people of Boston are. Um, he's also very conscious of the fact that winning the war against Britain is only half the battle, and says to his brother, the country will be torn in pieces twice. 
First, this quarrel with Great Britain will settle, and then there will have to be some permanent form of government established. And to quote him again, whether that form will be free or despotic is beyond the reach of human wisdom to decide. Um, sounds eerily prescient. Um, and the point to his brother is, whoever comes to the house and tells you to put on a uniform and pick up a gun, don't do it. So terrible worry, uh, the worst outcome he could have imagined. And yet there's also a part of him in this no choice war that is relieved to have the last uh, point of decision taken away from him. It would have been very difficult to have taken his tour if he had stayed any longer. And yet if he had gone any sooner, it would have been harder to tell his family they must follow him to England but now there is no choice left. A sort of providential mindset where decisions have made him. The side of the ocean has chosen him rather than the other way around. So for the rest of Copley's life, uh, England was his context and the American Revolution or Britain's American War was his content. Uh, that no choices left war that soon became a losing war. Um, Copley's art in London, we could see uh, in the 1770s and 1780s as trying to fashion the art of winning by losing. He was able to paint as he could not possibly have done in, uh, in uh, British America and the new United States. His pictures got big. Um, and yet, uh, the places where he could find glory and public acclaim in a country uh, that was losing half of its American colonies in a war where losses outnumbered gains um, was a pretty narrow needle. And I'll just talk very briefly about some of the pictures that threaded that needle, one of which uh, is upstairs. One of the only, I think there are really only two of Copley's great London pictures that we see here in the United States, and they're both at the National Gallery. Um, so uh, this version of Watson and the shark, the first version uh, is here upstairs in the West Wing. Um, and it's the picture that made Copley's uh, metropolitan reputation. How is it an American Revolution picture? It's the art of suspense and the art of what might have been. Uh, Havana Harbor, where uh, Brooke Watson is shown in his uh, youthful peril. I like the... The MFA version doesn't have the flayed leg like the, uh, like the National Gallery version does. Uh, the, uh, the sense of not knowing how it will all come out next um, is the suspense mechanics that make the picture work. It's exhibited at exactly the moment that um, uh, the upstart rebels have had their first major victory. France has just thrown in with the uh, rebel colonies, and there's rumor that Spain, Havana's Spain, will soon come in uh, in the coalition of Britain's uh, enemies. The next of his great London successes, the death of the Earl of Chatham in the House of Parliament, uh, shows uh, a, the sad revolution story of the loss of the middle way. Um, so Chatham, known in America as the great friend of the patriots, is also the great enemy of independence. He dies in vain against American independence on the floor of the House of Lords. Um, and uh, the, if 
Watson makes his academic reputation, it's Chatham that makes his popular reputation. Tens of thousands of people come to see it in a tent uh, in Green Park. And then in 1784, Copley exhibits this picture uh, after the Peace of Paris has created the new United States um, and in a Britain that is still looking for images of martial glory. Um, so it's a picture in which the redcoats are the heroes, but the Americans are not the villains. This is a rump group of French legionnaires on the Isle of Jersey in a battle that lasted about 15 minutes. It's hard to find victories to paint. Uh, a minor major is Major Pearson, not a name on, anybody's, on everybody's lips now or then. And yet, um, in this very striking passage in the middle of the picture, Copley celebrates uh, a war that Britain was still winning, the war to embody liberty, uh, known as British liberty or English liberty in Copley's Boston. I've traced this man in the documentary record. Uh, the servant, not of Pearson, but of another person in the battle, uh, was a South Carolinian slave who had fled behind British lines as tens of thousands of other enslaved uh, people in the southern colonies did, um, and joined the British Army, managed to survive it, as few did, um, and wound up in this battle uh, in Jersey, and from there followed his captain to London, where he was settled in the trade of a hairdresser, uh, a sort of lower middling artisanal trade that it would have been impossible to imagine as an enslaved person in the American South. The last of Copley's Revolutionary War pictures came too late, which was a theme of his London life after the mid 1780s. This is the Siege and Relief of Gibraltar, which hangs at Guildhall. It's larger. This is the only slide I'm showing you that's larger than the slide. It's about 18 by 25. Um, the thing I want to say about it is uh, the Siege and Relief of Gibraltar ends in 1782. He doesn't get the painting up until 1791. Um, there's a sort of too little too late or maybe too much too lateness about the way that he hangs on to the war and the war hangs on to him after Britain's eyes are elsewhere. Which brings me to the last point I want to make, which is one that Copley wrote himself, how short a way do we penetrate into the secrets of futurity? We tend to tell, well, we have to tell history backwards, right? It's the only way we can see it, looking back from our smug now. But um, people, of course, lived it forward. And it makes a huge difference when we look at events like the American Revolution, which are sacred, a kind of scripture to us, as people at the time saw them, uh, contingent, violent, partial, um, unstable. Copley, like the rest of us, saw into the future both well and poorly. So for example, as I said, he knew that the rebels would prevail. But many other times, he missed the future again and again, partly by accident, like not having painted George Washington, uh, an accident of timing that uh, redounded to them both. He's the only major painter of the Atlantic 18th century who's ever in America and doesn't paint Washington. Um, partly by making the wrong bets, trying to sell the American Revolution when Britain is embroiled in the Napoleonic Wars. Um, failing to marshal the boldness 
to return to claim his Boston property and enter the economic dynamism that the United States has manifested by the 1790s. Betting on the wrong boat, as he does literally here by painting in the spring of 1797, a Napoleonic war hero named Admiral Duncan. Ever heard of him? The one he doesn't paint that spring, the other possible commission, a guy named Nelson. This is the literal painting, uh, betting on the wrong horse, painting uh, in this 1809 portrait of George IV as Prince of Wales, an enormous painting that's at the MFA, uh, literally hidden in plain sight outside an elevator. It's just sort of noise. Uh, it's a terrible picture. Um, it's called, uh, it's referred to by the critics as uh, a Brobdingnag general in Lilliput. Uh, the prince won't take it. No one will take an engraving for it. Um, it's one of the many ways that we see how poorly the romantic view of late work that we attach to figures like Beethoven and Shakespeare uh, fits most artists in their time. Again, a sort of too much, too late quality about much of what Copley paints after the 1780s. So that's a sad ending, and I want to give you a happier one. My dad used to ask during weeping, weepy movies, does everybody go to the seashore at the end? Um, and in Copley's world, not everybody went to the seashore, and he did not go to the seashore. Um, but there were half full parts of his late life, and that brings us back to the exiles in the corner of the painting who were his family. Um, he said uh, during his uh, grand tour, that launching his children into the world with reputation was the core of his purpose. And one of the gambits of my book is to figure out what happens if we believe him, uh, if we write the biography of a famous man as if family strategy really was at the heart of it. So this is your great Copley painting that hangs upstairs in Gallery 59 in the West Wing. Uh, it's called the, the Artist Family or the Copley Family. It's painted in the spring of 1776 when Copley and his wife and her dour father-in-law, her dour father, his dour father-in-law, are reunited in London uh, where they all, uh, where they mostly remain for the rest of their lives. Um, I like to think of it as a declaration of interdependence, this wonderful chain of hands, hand to hand to hand down the center of the picture. You can see her, go up and see it after, really. I, I was in tears seeing it before I came down. You can see the way her fingers sinks into the child's flesh, her wedding ring, like the star in the middle of the constellation of his world. Um, it's his goal that the children rise above their station, which was not really a British goal. That's an American goal. And in that, he succeeded. So his son, uh, the exile at the corner of Major Pearson, became Baron Lyndhurst, Lord High Chancellor, and a peer, a peer of the new creation uh, in, the, uh, in the British House of Lords, shown here in one of many state portraits painted of him over the course of his long life. And his daughter, Betsy, uh, the middle, the sort of staring, earnest middle of the family portrait, has the uh, accidental success of marrying back to the United States. She comes back to Boston after 1800 um, into a slaving fortune. Um, and the money from her demerara planter husband 
uh, is what funds the rise of the sun and sustains the Copleys in their old age. Um, when Betsy's husband died in Boston in 1832, he manumitted a slave who was his son who had lived with him, lived with them. I think that they owned, if not the last enslaved person, certainly one of the last enslaved people in Boston, uh, about a block down from the newspaper, The Liberator. Betsy Copley lived a long, long time. All of, this, all of the children who survived, survived into their 90s, and there she is photographed in 1862 with her dress that looks like a couch and her stuffed parrot. Um, and uh, she was the custodian of the family memory. The ability to tell this story is a lot about the kind of work of husbanding letters and documents that she and her surviving sister Mary did. Um, when her brother died, she sent her daughter and other agents to England to bring back the pictures that had stayed in the family uh, the whole time. And that's the route by both by which both Boston uh, and Washington get uh, Boss, uh, Watson and the Shark, and by which uh, the Copley family comes back to the United States. We say comes back, but it was a country that um, neither Copley nor this family had ever known. We call these, uh, we call, we call this return a, a repatriation of American art to our American wings, but it's not really. It's an exile of these pictures. Um, and one of the wonderful things about the way that the National Gallery displays this great work is it sits in a gallery of British art next to Joshua Reynolds and George Romney and Thomas Gainsborough, the people Copley would have thought of as his peers, like him, Britons from cradle to grave. Thank you. So they've told me that people can come ask me questions outside. I think we have time for a couple in here if, um, if you want to bring up lights. Yes, sir. Yes, please. Uh, aside from the tea episode, what was Copley's opinion of the, of the imperial preference system, the so-called Washington? The, the Atlantic planners were really, uh, really upset about that imperial preference system by which they, they had to sell their goods to England. They had to sell their goods to London through London merchants, and they had to take their price. Yeah, I mean, he, he was a sort of soft liberty man um, in the mid-1760s. I think he was a category of people who we would class not as patriots but imperial reformers, um, so that everybody who protested at the Stamp Act in the 1765 riots wanted not an independent America, but a return to the status quo ante, um, and, and that, would have been, uh, that would have been him. Uh, so he was somebody, to the extent he had politics at all, um, you know, kept the, the subjecthood that had been uh, given to him at birth, never sought to fashion a citizenship. Um, you know, was enough of a liberty man that he went that he went to some celebrations of the anniversary of those uh, Stamp Act rebellions, um, but he thought independence was idiotic. He, you know, like Franklin at first, he thought that the United States was such a demographic engine. It's a it's a society that's population is doubling every generation. It's a very young society. Such a demographic engine that if they could just leave it alone for a hundred years, it, it would be a machine that went of itself. It would become independent by default. Um, he didn't like to be hurried 
in any part of his life. Um, so a return to the status quo ante is what he wanted. Um, you know, he paints Hancock and uh, Revere and Sam Adams, and we know for a fact that he comes to despise at least two of them. Um, uh, you, it's Revere who I don't know what he thinks of. Um, and I, you know, they, they, are, um, they are a very different temperature of man. He's, he's sort of cool-blooded at a time when there isn't a lot of patience for rumination or second guesses. Yeah? Well, you began your talk with the one painting that's probably most familiar um, to, to non-specialists on the Revere portrait. You begin your book, you make uh, what amounts to an kind of comment that doesn't make your favorite yeah, it's so um, it's so hard for us to appreciate the arc that he wanted to have because so few of the London paintings are here, right? Um, I, I think that the death of Major Pearson has his whole life in it. It's the arc of his whole life. So it's uh, the brilliant redness of it and the fact that that imperial fabric still holds him like a shroud. Uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a wrapping cloth and it's a shroud from cradle to grave. Um, it's got the sort of slavery and liberty axis in the middle in this heroic figure of African descent who um, is really not quite like anything in the canon of 18th century art. You know, it's a, it's a heroic black figure with a gun, um, which is something that you see in some um, quite revolutionary tempered French art after Haiti for a brief period of time. Um, so I find that a sort of thrilling pictorial innovation. And then how many battle pictures have women and children as central figures in them? So that you see uh, the sort of global America arc ending with the family. It's also just an incredibly dynamic and lush and colorful picture um, of a little smaller than this size. It really just beautifully holds its wall. Yes, ma'am. Um, when did Boston reclaim Copley? I mean, um, Copley Square? Yeah. Right, right. So, you know, he becomes exactly as you're suggesting, a kind of favored native son, um, which he would have found at the very least ironic. So Copley Square gets named in 1878, right after the American centennial. The MFA opens in the centennial. Um, even at that moment, European art is still uh, highly preferred in a sort of post-colonial way. Um, but as the sitters' descendants die, there comes to be a belief in Boston and New York first, uh, then in Philadelphia, and then it spreads to the hinterlands, so Washington at that point, Chicago, um, that these, are, that these are, ought to be part of public memory. Um, and that they incarnate Americanness in part for what Copley would have discarded as their primitivism. Um, so it's, it's a way that the American national project, mostly in the late 19th century and forward, um, enlists him, uh, which he would have found 
amusing. He wanted to be remembered as one of America's greatest artists. What he meant by America was different than what America became. I think what he would certainly have wanted is for Pearson or Chatham to go back and be the instance that showed what America could do. Um, but instead, and this is a whole other book, we became a nation of faces, right? We became a nation that believed so strongly in a kind of radical individualism that really only portraits could do that political work for us. Um, the portraits of Copley standing for the world of before, the portraits of Stuart, uh, you know, standing for the early American project, and people like, um, Jonathan Trumbull and Samuel Morse, who wanted to bring a tradition of history painting to America, um, failed you know, into the mid-late 19th century. Um, so we hung, we hung on to portraits because that's the nation we want to be, is the nation where we stare that guy in the face. Um, and I think there's a terrific book to be written about what that says about us and our self-conception and our politics. Well, um, you know, I was, I was thinking about this when I was sitting in the gallery before. So you can't quite see in a slide, but you can when you all just march upstairs to see this picture. Copley's velvet jacket is this beautiful bottle green, almost a British racing green, and his father-in-law is the only literally black spot in the whole picture. It's a, there's a kind of void of energy. Um, he cannot recoup himself, right? He's an old man who built up a considerable fortune and lost everything he couldn't carry. He funds these people until Copley's daughter is able to take over um, with her Caribbean trading married fortune. Um, he's really too old to get something new going. Uh, and all the connections he has, all the mercantile connections he has are from a severed world. Um, so they are not in penury by any means, but I think his father-in-law never recovers a wherewithal. People, the world of loyalist travelers who are over there repair to him, he's this, you know, he's the sort of dean of the Massachusetts loyalists, um, and often write in their diaries about, you know, he's still grumbling about everything he's lost. He lives for a long time. Uh, you know, I, I think he casts a, a kind of a pall, um, although without his dour sustenance, they really couldn't have made it. I think Copley never makes enough in London uh, to really float the household, although I don't have account records that would enable me to establish that for sure. Things like, I'll say one more economic thing about his London painting. So things like the death of Chatham, which is an enormous, enormous public success. 60,000 people pay a shilling each to see it. That sounds like potentially a lot of money, except he's worked on it almost exclusively for two years. Um, and the way that you can really monetize something like that is either that it leads to royal patronage, that doesn't happen for him, um, or that you sell a wildly successful print. The print is very long in coming, um, and by then public attention has moved on. So Clark stays, uh, Clark remains a kind of anchor for the family, um, both for better and for worse. Yeah, on the back. Um, I didn't know that he had ever painted anything religious. Yes. Did he do anything else apart from that little one? Yes, um, he does. He does. You know, 
more than three and fewer than 10 biblical scenes, Samuel reproved by Saul, um, uh, his diploma picture is the money changers being driven from the temple. Um, I think um, the reason we know those least is because it's easier to enfold history painting into the narrative of its time <clears throat> and for us to be able to see it with something like 18th century eyes than to recover a context for, uh, for his religious painting. But yeah, there are a couple of the ones at the MFA um, and, and the Little Ascension is at the MFA too. It's a, it's a minority piece of his practice and, and there too, if the gambit of going to England is to paint public art, um, one of the things that religious paintings have to yield is a patron. Um, you know, the patron could be, as it was for Benjamin West of Philadelphia, that hack, um, uh, the King of England, who pays him, among other things, to decorate his chapels. Um, so that is a place for religious painting. Uh, people with great houses who have family chapels. Um, otherwise, it's not, uh, it's not part of the celebrity culture of English public exhibitions. And you know, you really, they're not sellable. Um, so he does them occasionally and for academic purposes. He also does the other genre I haven't mentioned is he does a couple of literary scenes, um, one of which from the Fairy Queen, uh, Red Cross Knight is here. It's over one of the stairwells in the West Gallery. Yes. It's, it's not heroic, is it? No. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, one of the ironies of this correspondence is she saved all of his letters and none of hers survive. Um, you know, I think that what he would have said if I'm, if I'm the um, attorney for the defense here, <laughs> Uh, he would have said that this was the road to bettering his family in this new world. So that he had gotten to a point in his art in America that if he were to get better, he would have to see what other people had done. One of the things that doesn't really come through in this talk is just how visually impoverished the world in which he grew up was. Somebody said to me uh, recently, how did he manage to paint better than anything he had ever seen? Which he did in, in colonial America, literally better than anything anybody, anything he had ever seen. You know, occasional pictures that were brought from the Grand Tour that were copies of old masters. Nobody had like a Rembrandt sitting in Boston. Um, so I think what he would say is in order to enlarge the frame, he had to go and make that investment in his career. And it turned out to be a, a, a much, more expensive investment than he knew on their behalf because he left and it was a cold war and before they were back together it was a hot war and Boston as you may know was besieged by the uh, Patriot militia. They were living in a besieged city after uh, Concord and Lexington. Um, so they were apart for about 18 months um, and you know what's so if I'm the brief for the prosecution 
She came to London in the summer of 1775. As soon as the war breaks out, uh, they're of an elite enough stature that they're gotten out. Um, and he doesn't return, he doesn't cut short his trip to greet her in London. So she's cooling her heels with the children and the brother in London um, for almost six months before he finishes the tour. And I think, um, as I've said, he's a very hard person to uh, move from his path. You know, he had gotten on that path, and I think he probably figured, once I get home, I'm never going to leave again, so I should see it through. Um, and he saw it through. He's not, uh, it's one of the reasons that I like him as a vehicle for telling the story of the American Revolution. We have way too many heroes. You cannot understand a struggle where there are only heroes. Um, so he's not villainous, but he's not heroic. Thank you very much, wonderful questions. This has been the National Gallery of Art Podcast. 